Hi, everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the Tuesday, December 27th edition. It's brought to you here on the morning of Wednesday, December 28th. Hope you're having a great start to your day, everyone. This is Andrew Haupt filling in. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. As uh, we are taking a look here, first, before we look at the headlines, at the weather for Mason City, Clear Lake, and the North Iowa area. We can expect for today your Wednesday mostly cloudy conditions. Those winds from the south gusting to as high as 25 miles per hour, high near 36 degrees. How about that? Above freezing. Maybe we'll melt off some of that accumulation we've had over the past several days. For tonight, you can expect winds from the south up to 10 miles per hour. Cloudy conditions low around 29 degrees for your overnight low. For tomorrow, Thursday, expect a slight chance of rain or freezing rain before noon, then a slight chance of rain between noon and 3 p.m., then a slight chance of rain, snow and freezing rain after 3 p.m. Areas of fog between noon and 4 p.m. Otherwise cloudy with a high near 36. So be careful if you're out and about tomorrow on your Thursday. Thursday night, mostly cloudy, a low around 19 above. Friday, mostly sunny, a high near 33. Looking through the weekend here, Friday, high 33. Saturday, high 35. And for your Sunday, New Year's Day, expect partly sunny conditions, a high near 32 degrees. As we get this reading started off, taking a look at those headlines here in the Mason City Globe Gazette. West Hancock to meet January on plan for redistricting. We'll see what happens there. GHV custodian finds way to connect with students. This is a story about uh, custodian Neil Hogland. Also, West Point to vanquish Confederate symbols out of New York. Hmm. And the 22 census of agriculture underway. Those stories and more here on this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette, the Tuesday, December 27th edition, is brought to you here on the morning of Wednesday, December 28th. Let me quick click a few buttons here, and away we go. Yes, there it is, the full edition right in front of me. We're going to start off with GHV Custodian Finds Way to Connect with Students, the story by Abby Koch of the Globe Gazette. If you were to ask anyone in the Garner Hayfield Ventura schools who is the most likable individual in the district, they would most likely say that title belongs to custodian Neil Hogland. He's probably the kindest man that God has ever put on earth, said GHV Middle School Principal Deborah Steenhard. Hogland became a full-time custodian in 1989, with four years previously spent as a part-time employee. His father was once the head custodian, so Hogland knew what the job entailed, and he liked the idea of working with kids. With so many years in the district, current GHV parents who were once students still ask about Hogland. I've seen a lot of kids come and go, said Hogland with a big smile. Elementary principal Michael Myring was one of those students who knew Hogland well when he attended GHV schools. Myring said Hogland is still the same individual who knows how to brighten a student's day. I would say he could quite possibly be the nicest person on earth, said Myring. There's not a lot of men in the elementary setting. And so he's a nice man and sets a good example for kids and adults. Both Steenhard and Myring mentioned Hogland's ability to develop personal relationships with a majority of the kids. Some of the ways he does that is through giving people nicknames and sharing his Tic Tacs. Just the fact that he tries to get to know individuals is so meaningful in a place where people can kind of blend in sometimes, said Myring. It's just fun being with the kids and interacting with them, said Hogland. I've had some kids ask me to come read a story, so I've gone and read stories to them in the classroom. 
Hoglin gets his inspiration for the nicknames he gives the students from entertainment he consumes and from the auctions he attends. A few of the nicknames Hoglin has given students were once held by their parents. The superintendent's daughter, the one who retired last year, her name was Madison, so I called her Madison, Wisconsin. The nicknames just come to me, Hoglin says. He calls one of my friends Winchester, said fifth grader Jake Stromer. Giving kids a tic-tac in the morning became a routine for Hoglin 20 years ago after a student asked what was jingling in his pocket. He said many of the bus kids now wait for him to drop the small mint treat into their hand as he holds the door open for them. Hoglin believes he goes through 120 to 130 packs of Tic Tacs in a single year. Myring remembers me giving Tic Tacs to him and his classmates, and he's been out of school 20 years now. He said at his class reunion, the adults asked him, Is Neil still giving out Tic Tacs? said Hoglin. Well, Hoglin finds ways to have students feel included and special, whether that's having the student hold the vacuum cord as he cleans or stopping what he is doing to give them his full attention. Because of the bonds created in those moments, Steenhard said, there are GHV students that chose to go help Hogland as a reward. We've had some middle school boys who find it very hard to sit at a desk. They would do their work as a reward and get to help Neil do something in the building, a job that most people wouldn't want to do. But because of that connection Neil has with them and had with them, it was a bonus. That says Steenhard. He's just funny, and he jokes around like, do you want to vacuum the carpets and stuff like that, said Stromer. Hoglin thinks those moments with the kids mean as much for them as they do for him. It's just touching and nice to see it means a lot. It brings a smile on my face, that's for sure, said Hogland. What Hogland means to the students at GHV can be witnessed by walking down the hallway with him. Kids frequently stop to tell him hello or give him a hug which the custodian reciprocates with a big smile and strikes up a conversation. They view Neil as that one caring adult that they could go to with an issue that they like to spend time with, Steenhardt explained. They feel that Neil doesn't demand things from them, like do math, read, do these things that are hard for you. It's just that one extra adult connection that makes a difference for a kid, especially kids that aren't crazy about coming to school. It just really means a lot that they will remember me even after they're married and their kids come here. I've had students come up and say, my mom remembers you, said Hogland. It means a lot that they remember me. That's written by Abby Koch, who covers education and entertainment for the Globe Gazette. She can be followed on Twitter at M-K-A-Y-A-B-B-Y or email her at abbyabby.koch, K-O-C-H, at globegazette.com. Moving back to front page news. West Hancock to meet January on plan for redistricting. This written by the Summit Tribune staff. On December 19th, West Hancock School Board held a public hearing regarding redistricting of its board of director districts before unanimously approving a redistricting plan resolution. The board members determined as a result of the 2020 census that the existing boundaries of the elector districts do not comply with the requirements of Iowa Code. The redistricting plan is available for viewing at the West Hancock Community School District Office. The board set 6 p.m. on January 16, 2023 in the high school boardroom as the time and place for a public hearing regarding the 2023-24 school calendar. 
It also approved a bid from Ampro for the replacement of the high school cafeteria technology system that was damaged by lightning last spring. Under personnel matters, board members approved Nick Burgard as assistant middle school football coach for the 2023-24 school year. Holly Weiss-Chipman as the high school tech liaison, Caitlin Zeigler as drama director, and Madison Wood as a middle school paraeducator pending her graduation. The board also authorized the district's administration to submit a $146,397 request to the School Budget Review Committee for at-risk dropout expenditures. That's a short story. Moving on to more news. We will do the agriculture census right now. We'll finish up front page with the West Point to Vanquish Confederate Symbols. This story by the Press News staff, 2022 Census of Agriculture underway. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Neg is encouraging Iowa farmers and producers to participate in the 2022 Census of Agriculture, which is underway across the nation through February 6, 2023. According to the press release, the Census of Agriculture, which is conducted every five years by the United States Department of Agriculture, National Agricultural Statistics Service, or NASS, is the nation's most comprehensive count of America's farms and ranches, the people who operate them, and the crops and livestock they raise. The Census of Agriculture provides valuable information to both the public and private sector that will guide decisions shaping programs and policies for many years to come, said Neg. I encourage all Iowa farmers and producers to respond to the census, which will continue to demonstrate the value of Iowa agriculture and our significant role in providing food and ag products to consumers here and around the world. The census, which began in 1840, now covers 3,000 U.S. counties and 30,000 zip codes. It is completed in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, and the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Island. Iowa producers may complete the census by mail, phone, or online at nass.usda.gov backslash ag census. That's nass.usda.gov backslash ag census, C-E-N-S-U-S. For more information, you can call 888-424-7828. All responses are due by February 6th. And finally, in the our front page news here in the Mason City Globe Gazette, West Point to vanquish Confederate symbols. The story by Bobby Kana Calvin of the Associated Press, Dateline, New York. Before turning against the U.S. military to command the Confederate Army, Robert E. Lee served as the superintendent of West Point, the hallowed military academy that produced patriots like Ulysses S. Grant, Douglas MacArthur, and Dwight Eisenhower. But in the coming days, the storied academy will take down a portrait of Lee dressed in his Confederate uniform from its library where it has been hanging since the 1950s and place it in storage. It will also remove the stone bust of the Civil War's top Southern general at Reconciliation Plaza. And Lee's quote about honor will be stripped from the academy's honor plaza. The moves are part of a Department of Defense directive issued in October, ordering the Academy to address racial injustice and do away with installations that commemorate or memorialize the Confederacy. 
That includes a trio of bronze panels measuring 11 feet tall and 5 feet wide that depict significant events and figures in U.S. history, including Benjamin Franklin and Clara Barton. But the oversized plaques dedicated in 1965 not only featured Lee and other supporters of the Confederacy, but an image of an armed man in a hood with Ku Klux Klan written below. The Congressional Naming Commission, which initiated the changes at the Academy, noted there are clearly ties in the KKK to the Confederacy. In a message posted on the Academy's website, Lieutenant General Steve Gilland, the Academy superintendent, said it would begin complying with the Commission's recommendations during the holiday break. We will conduct these actions with dignity and respect, he said. United States Military Academy, as West Point is officially known, was established in 1809 along the bank of the Hudson River in upstate New York. The school has about 4,600 cadets, two-thirds of them white, and about 13% black, according to federal data. West Point was not the only installation under scrutiny by the Congressional Commission. It also recommended that eight other installations address symbols of the racist past. The U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, renamed buildings and roads that memorialized Confederate admirals or those who sought to perpetuate black enslavement. More than a half dozen of the commission's recommendations for West Point involve Lee, who graduated second in his class in 1829 and later served as superintendent. The commission recommended that Lee Barracks, Lee Road, Lee Gate, Lee Housing Area and Lee Area Child Development Center all be renamed. The report said Lee's armies were responsible for the deaths of more United States soldiers than practically any other enemy in our nation's history. Two other Confederate officers in the commission's crosshairs were West Point grads PGT Beauregard and William Hardy. The panel called for Beauregard Place and Hardy Place to be renamed. It was not until the early 1930s when West Point began installing Confederate memorials the commission noted, saying it did so under pressure from the revisionist lost cause movement that sought to recast the causes of the Civil War and depict those who fought for the Confeder Confederacy as deserving of honor for their sacrifices. And one note on that, what did we have, four northern states that were slave states? This is ridiculous. Anyway, moving on now to more news here in the Mason City Globe Gazette. And I say that as someone who used to serve at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is named after Confederate General Braxton Bragg. Police seize on COVID-19 tech to expand global surveillance. This is what we were all worried about. This is an AP story from Jerusalem. The name here in the story is M-A-J-D. Last name spelled R-A-M-L-A-W-I. Dateline is Jerusalem. So the Majdi Ramlawi was serving coffee in Jerusalem's old city when a chilling text message appeared on his phone. You have been spotted as having participated in acts of violence in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it read in Arabic. We will hold you accountable. Ramlawi, then 19, was among hundreds of people who civil rights attorneys estimate got the text last year at the height of one of the most turbulent recent periods in the Holy Land. Many, including Ramlawi, say they only live or work in the neighborhood and had nothing to do with the unrest. What he didn't know was that the feared internal security agency, the Shin Bet, was using mass surveillance technology mobilized for coronavirus contact tracing. 
against Israeli residents and citizens for purposes entirely unrelated to COVID-19. In the pandemic's bewildering early days, millions worldwide believed government officials who said they needed confidential data for new tech tools that could help stop coronavirus spread. In return, governments got a fire hose of individuals' private health details, photographs that captured their facial measurements, and their home addresses. Now from Beijing to Jerusalem to Hyderabad, India, and Perth, Australia, the Associated Press found that the authorities used these technologies and data to halt travels for activists and ordinary people harass marginalized communities, and link people's health information to other surveillance and law enforcement tools. In some cases, data was shared with spy agencies. The issue has taken on fresh urgency almost three years into the pandemic, as China's ultra-strict zero-COVID policies recently ignited the sharpest and largest public rebuke of the country's authoritarian leadership since the pro-democracy protest in Tiananmen Square in 1989. For more than a year, AP journalists interviewed sources and poured over thousands of documents to trace how technologies marketed to quote-unquote flatten the curve were put to other uses, just as the balance between privacy and national security shifted after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. COVID-19 has given officials justification to embed tracking tools in society that have lasted long after lockdowns. Here's what the AP found. Israel's Shin Bet security agency repurposed phone surveillance technology it previously used to monitor militants in inside Palestinian territories to monitor people for COVID-19 contact tracing. Then in 2021, the agency quietly began using the same technology to send threatening messages to Arab citizens and residents of Israel whom the agency suspected of participating in violent clashes with police. Some of the recipients, however, simply lived or worked in the area or were mere passerby. In China, citizens had to install cell phone apps to move about freely in most cities. Drawing from telecommunications data and PCR test results, the apps produce individual QR codes that change from green to yellow or red, depending on a person's health status. Now, as pandemic restrictions are eased, there is evidence the health codes have been used to stifle dissidents. Citizens who wanted to lodge complaints against the government suddenly found their codes turning red, even though they hadn't tested positive for COVID-19 or been near infected individuals. As early as May 2020, in India, the police chief of Telangana State tweeted about his department rolling out artificial intelligence-based software using CCTV to zero in on people not wearing masks. S.Q. Masood, a social activist, was among the people stopped seemingly at random by police in a predominantly Muslim area of Hyderabad last year. Masood said officers told him to remove his mask so they could photograph him with a tablet. He's now suing police to find out why. Although law enforcement denies using facial recognition in Masood's case, the lawsuit is continuing and experts said it may set a precedent. In Australia, people used apps to tap their phones against QR codes at restaurants, performance venues, and other public spaces to record their presence so they could be contacted in case of COVID-19 
of a COVID-19 outbreak, uh, if it was linked to a place, they visited. But in multiple cases, Australian law enforcement co-opted the state-level QR check in data as a sort of electronic dragnet to investigate crimes. The practice came despite government assurances that the information would be used only to promote public health. In the U.S., the federal government used the pandemic as an opportunity to build out its surveillance toolkit. It signed two contracts in 2020 worth $24.9 million with the data mining and surveillance company Palantir Technologies. That's P-A-L-A-N-T-I-R, Palantir Technologies, Inc., to support the Department of Health and Human Services pandemic response. Documents obtained by the immigrant rights group Just Futures Law under the Freedom of Information Act and shared with the AP show that federal officials considered integrating identifiable patient data, such as mental health, substance use, and behavioral health information from group homes, shelters, jails, detox facilities, and schools. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention does not use any of that individual-level information in the platform the CDC now manages, said Kevin Griffs, a department spokesman. Hmm. Well, not for now. All right, moving on now to page A4 in the Mason City Globe, because in the time that we have, we have plenty of time till the halfway point in the digest section. Conflict flares on Korean Peninsula. Dateline Seoul, South Korea. South Korea's military fired warning shots, scrambled fighter jets, and flew surveillance assets across the heavily fortified border with North Korea on Monday after North Korean drones violated its airspace for the first time in five years. In a fresh escalation of tensions, South Korea's military detected five drones from North Korea crossing the border, and one traveled as far as the northern part of the South Korean capital region, which is about an hour's drive away, South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said. Attack helicopters fired a combined 100 rounds, but it wasn't immediately known if any of the North Korean drones were shot down, the Defense Ministry reported. There were no immediate reports of civilian damage on the ground in South Korea. Southern freeze creates water crisis, Dateline Jackson, Mississippi. Days of freezing temperatures in deep south areas that usually freeze for only hours are threatening dozens of water systems as burst pipes leak millions of gallons of water. The problems were happening Monday in large, troubled water systems like Jackson, Mississippi, where residents were required over Christmas to boil water months, that's months, after most lost service because of a cascade of problems from years of poor maintenance. Dozens of water systems either had boil advisories in place because of low pressure or warned of bigger catastrophes if leaks from broken pipes weren't found and water shut off. The culprit was temperatures that dropped below freezing Thursday or early Friday and have spent only a few hours, if any, above 32 degrees since then. In other brief news, in COVID uh, news, China will drop a COVID-19 quarantine requirement for passengers arriving from abroad starting January 8th, the National Health Commission announced Monday. Currently arriving passengers must quarantine for five days at a hotel, followed by three days at home. Mall shooting, the Hennepin 
County Medical Examiner's Office said Sunday that John Tay Hudson, age 19, of St. Paul, died of gunshot wounds just before 8 p.m. on Friday at the Mall of America on Friday in Bloomington, Minnesota. Police arrested five teenagers in connection with the shooting. Police say the shooting occurred after two groups of men, young men, got in a fight. Shopping holiday sales rose this year as American spending remained resilient during the critical shopping season, despite surging prices on everything from food to rent, according to MasterCard Spending Pulse data released Monday. From Afghanistan, the top U.N. official in Kabul met with a Taliban government minister in Afghanistan's capital on Monday following a decision by the country's new rulers to bar women from working for non-governmental organizations, the U.N. mission said. From Japan, heavy snow in large swaths of Japan has killed 17 and injured more than 90 people and left hundreds of homes without power, disaster management officials said Monday. Many parts of northeastern Japan reported three times their average snowfall for the season. And finally from France, members of France's Kurdish community and others held a silent march Monday to honor three people killed in a shooting at a Kurdish cultural center in Paris that prosecutors say was motivated by racism. Those stories from the Associated Press. Major storm kills at least 50. Officials call deadly blizzard likely worst storm in our lifetime. The story by Carolyn Thompson of the Associated Press, Dateline, Buffalo, New York. The death toll from a Buffalo-area blizzard rose to 27 in western New York, authorities said Monday, as the region reeled from one of the worst weather-related disasters in its history. Much of the rest of the United States was hit by ferocious winter conditions. Those who died around Buffalo were found in cars, homes, and snowbanks. Some died while shoveling snow, others when emergency crews could not respond in time to medical crises. The storm is blamed for at least 50 deaths nationwide with rescue and recovery efforts ongoing Monday. Erie County Executive Mark Pullencars described the blizzard as the worst storm probably in our lifetime and warned there may be more dead. Some people he noted were stranded in their cars for more than two days. It's just a horrible situation that we can see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. But this is not the end yet, he said Monday. The National Weather Service said Monday that up to nine more inches of snow could fall in some areas through Tuesday. Scientists say the climate change crisis may have contributed to the intensity of the storm. That's because the atmosphere can carry more water vapor, which acts as fuel, says Mark Ceres, director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Victor Gensini a meteorology professor at Northern Illinois University, likened a single weather event to an at-bat and the climate as your batting average. The blizzard roared across western New York Friday and Saturday, stranding motorists, knocking out power, and preventing emergency crews from reaching residents. With many grocery stores in the Buffalo area closed and driving bans in place, some people pleaded on social media for donations of food and diapers. The ferocity of the whiteout conditions tested the area accustomed to punishing snow. It doesn't matter if you had a thousand more pieces of equipment and 10,000 personnel, there's still nothing you could have done in that period. It was that bad, said Pulling Cars, the county official. All right, we're almost to the halfway point here. I think we're close enough to, to tell you that we are 
reading you the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the Tuesday, December 27th edition. It's brought to you here on Wednesday, December 28th. On Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All of our programs heard on Iris are intended for the use of our audience. This is Andrew Hop filling in. We start off now with our obituaries, as we do at the halfway point. The first is for Patrick Pat Thomas Donnelly. Of Robbins, Patrick Pat Thomas Donnelly, age 74, of Robbins, Iowa, passed away on Thursday, December 22, 2022, at his home following a courageous battle with cancer. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, January 2, 2023, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, Iowa. A mass of Christian burial will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, January 3, 2023, at St. Pius X Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Burial will be held at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, January 4, 2023, at Sacred Heart Cemetery in Rockwell, Iowa. Pat was born March 7, 1948, in Mason City, Iowa, the son of Leo and Bernadine, maiden name Kelch, K-E-L-C-H, Donnelly. He was a 1966 graduate of Mason City High School and went on to honorably serve in the United States Army. Pat was self-employed most of his life and spent 30 years in the trucking business. He married Rose Schmall on December 27, 1991 in Florida. Pat enjoyed golfing and attending Notre Dame and Iowa State sporting events. Pat had an intense love of his family and enjoyed countless gatherings that included family and friends. Pat's smile brightened up a room, and his laughter was contagious. He touched the lives of many with his warm and giving heart. He will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved him. Patrick is survived and lovingly remembered by his wife of 31 years, Rose Donnelly of Robbins. Four children, Patrick married to Amy Donnelly of North Liberty, Iowa. Katie married to Paul Grillo of Ashland. Uh, or rather, Katie Ashland uh, is her last name. She's married to Paul Grillo. They're of Lakeville, Minnesota. Carl married to Amy Bothwell of Mason City, Iowa. And Heather married to Mark Folsky of Cedar Rapids. Eleven grandchildren. Kayla, Derek, Hannah, Joey, Patrick, Ava, Jackson, Sophia, Jace, Logan, and Madison. Two sisters, Jane Buck of Savage, Minnesota, and Judy Clavin of Mason City, Iowa. And sisters-in-law, Kay Donnelly of Des Moines, Iowa. Terry married to Roy Jones of Henderson, Nevada. Mary married to Jerry Phelan of Mason City, Iowa. Kathy married to Dan Russell of Sandford, Florida. And Joanne Schmall of Scottsdale, Arizona. And brothers-in-law, Michael married to Jill Schmall of Westerville, Ohio. Joseph married to Barb Schmall of Robbins, Iowa. Thomas married to Sandy Schmall of... Chan Hassan, Minnesota, Robert married to Donna Schmall of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Mark married to Michelle Schmall of West Des Moines, Iowa, and many nieces, nephews, and cousins. He was preceded in death by his parents, Leo and Bernie Donnelly, brothers Richard and Robert Donnelly, sister Frances Donnelly, father and mother-in-law, Leo and June Schmall, three nephews, Brian Hamlin, Jeff Clavin, and Jim Schmall, niece Savannah Cruz, and sister-in-law, Donna Donnelly. Memorials in Patrick's memory may be directed to either the American Cancer Society or to the American Diabetes Association. Please share a memory of Patrick at www.murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. Next up, we go to Phyllis D. Kern of Clear Lake. Phyllis D. Kern, age 87, of Clear Lake, passed away peacefully on December 24, 2022 in Clear Lake. 
As the bone-chilling temperatures and the storm pummeled outside, she was able to spend her final days in comfort and warmth, surrounded by her daughters, her girls, at a time they will treasure forever. A massive Christian burial will be held 10.30 a.m. Thursday, December 29th at St. Patrick's Catholic Church at 1001 9th Avenue South in Clear Lake with the Reverend Josh Link celebrant. Burial will follow in St. Boniface Catholic Cemetery in Garner. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, December 28th. That's today at the Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue North in Clear Lake. The rosary will be recited at 4.30 p.m. Wednesday, today. Visitation will resume one hour prior to Phyllis Mass at the church on Thursday, tomorrow. In lieu of flowers, please practice a kind gesture for another in Phyllis' memory, which would have brought her great joy. The Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel at 310 First Avenue North in Clear Lake is in charge of arrangements. They can be reached at 641-357-2193. Finally, we have Robert Bob L. Ingersoll of Sheffield. Robert Bob L. Ingersoll, age 60, of Sheffield, Iowa, entered his final resting place on December 24, 2022, in his home. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, December 30, 2022, at the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, located at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City, Iowa, with Pastor Dan Carlson and Pastor Brian Resendez officiating. Burial will be held in the Memorial Park Cemetery in Mason City, Iowa. Visitation will take place from 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, December 29th. That's tomorrow, 2022, at the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, located at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City, and will continue one hour prior to the service at 9.30 a.m. on Friday. The Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, located at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City, is in charge of arrangements. They can be reached at 641 423-2372. And then finally, one death notice to bring you. Phyllis A. Arthur, age 86, of Mason City, died Friday, December 23, 2022. Arrangements are with the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapels. And then one story here to bring you before we move on to the world of sports. Policy climate war make 2022 pivot year for clean energy. This is written by Sibby. Arasu of the Associated Press, Dateline, Bengaluru, India. For renewable energy companies in India, it's a good time to be in business. One of India's largest renewable energy firms, Renew Power, will be among the corporations big and small hoping for a piece of a $2.6 billion government scheme that encourages the domestic manufacturing of components required to produce solar energy. It's the biggest incentive in India's history. Renew Power CEO, Sumant Sinha said the government funds for clean energy send a strong signal that the country wants to become a manufacturing location for renewable energy equipment and a global alternative to China eventually. We are excited to be a part of this journey, he said. The company has more than 100 clean energy projects across India and has become the world's 10th largest solar and wind energy company in just over a decade. Other major governments around the world have been green-lighting ambitious renewable energy policies this past year that aim for major expansions of wind and solar energies, along with development of technologies like carbon capture, which captures carbon dioxide, a central cause of climate change, so they say, and stores it in ground, in the ground. 
Some of the policies also include tax credits to buy electric vehicles, heat pumps, or energy-efficient materials for construction. The United States signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, the most ambitious climate legislation in U.S. history. The European Parliament passed the RE Power EU plan to reduce dependence on Russian fossil fuels and fast-forward the transition to clean energy and China announced ambitious schemes to enable the country to meet its 2030 clean energy goals five years ahead of schedule. Experts say the task is now to build on this momentum in 2023, strengthen energy grid infrastructure, and resolve back-end issues which slow down the distribution and transmission of clean energy. From an energy perspective, 2022 will go down as a pivot year. For the first time, we have discernible proof that the fossil fuel demand after 200 years of growth, had reached a peak in 2019, and we are now bumping along a plateau before an inevitable decline, said Kingsmill Bond, an energy strategist at the Rocky Mountain Institute, a clean energy nonprofit group. RMI's research has found that global energy demand grew by around six additional exajoules in 2022, enough energy for around six million transatlantic flights. This is less than usual year-on-year growth as energy use is getting more efficient, the report said. Solar and wind supply growth this year was also calculated to be about 6 exajoules, whatever unit that is. Uh, Bond added that the price of clean energy was getting closer to that of fossil fuels. In some cases, it was cheaper. A report by the International Energy Agency said that oil prices rose well above $100 per barrel, in mid-2022, and high gas and coal prices accounted for electricity cost hikes around the world. But increased use of clean energy saved Asian countries, including China and India, a total of $34 billion in the past year, a separate report found. Energy analysts say that the global energy crisis triggered by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and increasing climate threats such as the disastrous floods in Pakistan have accelerated the clean energy policies and big tickets investments that are needed to transition to renewable energy, especially wind and solar energy around the world. And with that story, I think I'm going to go drive my V8 car and go get a steak. Anyway, moving on to the world of sports now, college football. One more opportunity, the Music City Bowl. Senior Sam Laporta eager to play one last game with teammates. That's written by Steve Batterson of the Quad City Times, airing here in the Mesa City Globe Gazette. It was never a question. Once Sam Laporta was cleared medically, the Iowa tight end knew he would take the field for the Hawkeyes in the trans-perfect Music City Bowl. I had one more opportunity to play with my boys, Laporta said during a Thursday video conference. I've been here for four years. I've given this program a lot, and it's given me more than I ever dreamed of since I've gotten here. It's just really important to me to play one more time, throw on the black and gold and lay it all out there. Mostly, Laporta wanted the opportunity to write a final chapter to his collegiate story after having his regular season cut short. The Big Ten tight end of the year led the Hawkeyes with 53 perceptions for 601 yards this season, but saw his regular season end in the first quarter of Iowa's 13-10 victory at Minnesota on November 19th when he suffered a knee injury. A Golden Gophers player was injured on the same play, and after an extended timeout, Laporta returned to the field for one more snap, and that is when he realized something wasn't right. He underwent surgery to repair a torn meniscus a couple days later, having his knee scoped and dealing with the realization that his senior day would not be what he envisioned. 
Instead, his final appearance at Kinnick Stadium proved to be an awkward experience. I had to walk across the field. I was in my sweatpants, and I mean, it was really cool to go out there and give my parents the rose. But missing the game was tough, Laporta said. I was trying to be a supportive teammate. That included encouraging teammates on the sideline during the Hawkeyes game against Nebraska while working toward his return to action at the same time. Laporta split his time that day between the sideline and the Hawkeye locker room. I was kind of going back and forth between the field and the locker room because I was actually putting my knee in a compression machine, hoping that I could keep the swelling down for a chance to possibly play in the Big Ten championship game, Laporta said. He conceded that would have been kind of a crazy turnaround, but it was possible and it was something he wanted to make happen. A loss that day to the Cornhuskers denied the Hawkeyes a second straight appearance in the Big Ten title game, and it brought Laporta time to recover. While a number of players who have hopes of being part of the 2023 NFL Draft class have chosen to opt out of participating with their teams in postseason bowl games, a growing trend in the college game, Laporta never gave that a thought. He said when he made the decision to return to Iowa a year ago, choosing to forego an early exit to chase his NFL dreams, he did so on the premise that he was all in with the Hawkeyes this season. And nothing that has happened in the months since has altered that objective for the six foot four. 249-pound native of Highland, Illinois. While Hawkeye safety Kayvon Merriweather chose to opt out of the bowl, Laporta recommitted to finishing the season with his teammates in Saturday's 11 a.m. game against Kentucky in Nashville. We were talking about it during a team meeting Thursday morning. If you're not 100%, 100% invested, then we don't want you out there because we want the guys out there going as hard as they can, Laporta said. You're here, you're in, and you're invested. So I'm here, and I want to be here. That's why he put in the time it took to be ready to go when Iowa began bowl preparations in earnest at the end of final exam week a little over a week ago. Laporta, whose 148 career receptions are the most ever by an Iowa tight end, and whose 1,000 730 receiving yards trails only All-American Marv Cook among Hawkeye tight ends said practices have gone well. He looks forward to taking the field one last time in an Iowa uniform. He said the knee is giving him no problems as the Hawkeyes begin their final game week preparations, looking to add one last win to their 7-5 resume. It's feeling good. I'm kind of getting acclimated back. I've been run out running around. It's feeling good, Laporta said and I feel I'm going to be 100%. I'm going to be ready to go. That chance has been motivation for Laporta, who views the opportunity as a continued chance to learn the game. From the start, I was trying to get back. First off, get my knee right, and then get ready to play in a game, Laporta said. I'm out there now getting a lot of physical reps. Sometimes that's not as good as being able to stand back 15 or 20 yards and see the entire field. With the next phase of his career set to begin once the final seconds tick off the clock at Nissan Stadium next weekend, Laporta sees the opportunity to learn as important as anything. It's kind of the difference of being out there and having tunnel vision and only seeing what's right in front of your face as opposed to being able to understand the concepts and what's going on across the entire field, he said. So I've been taking a lot of information too, and that's been good for me.
Coach Kirk Ferentz said it has been good for the rest of the Hawkeyes as well to have Laporta back on the practice field. He seems to be doing great. So happy about that, certainly, Ferentz said. And nobody is happier than Laporta. Just trying to get back and play in this bowl game is really where all my effort is focused, Laporta said. One more game with my guys. Okay, moving on now and other front page sports news. Nothing local in today's edition of the Mason City Globe Gazette. AP story, Miami Gardens, Florida. Packers intercept three passes in fourth, beat Tua and the Dolphins 26-20. Green Bay intercepted three of Tua Taga, I hope I'm saying this last name right, Taga Veloa's passes in the fourth quarter and the Aaron Rodgers and Packers rallied to beat the Miami Dolphins 26-20 on Sunday to keep their playoff hopes alive. Rodgers threw for 238 yards and a touchdown and had one interception for the Packers with a 7-8 record. They have won three in a row. Miami, with an 8-7 record, lost its fourth straight and must win its final two to make the postseason. The Dolphins trailed by six points with a chance to take the lead in the final two minutes, but Tagavaloa threw his third interception in three possessions to end Miami's comeback bid. He threw an interception with about six minutes left that set up a Packers field goal to make it a six-point game. Tyreek Hill had four catches for Miami to give him 113 for the season, setting a Dolphins season receiving record. Jalen Waddell had five receptions for 143 yards. From there we go to the Buccaneers, who scored 19 over the Cardinals, 16 in overtime. Glendale, Arizona is a dateline. Tom Brady and Tampa Bay maintain control of the NFC South overcoming a 10-point deficit in the fourth quarter and beating Arizona in overtime. Ryan Suckup hit a 40-yard field goal with 3 minutes and 41 seconds left in overtime, capping a 9-play, 66-yard drive. Brady wasn't great for much of the night, but came up big on the decisive drive, completing all six of his passes in a vintage display. The Cardinals got the ball to start overtime, but eventually had to punt. Tampa Bay got the big gain it needed when Brady found Russell Gage Jr. for a 23-yard gain. Arizona, 4-11, had lost five straight games while Tampa Bay snapped a two-game skid. The Bucks, with a 7-8 record, stayed a game ahead of the Carolina Panthers and New Orleans Saints in the NFC South. Tampa Bay has a crucial home game against Carolina next weekend. The 45-year-old Brady made his 331st career start at quarterback, while the Cardinals were down to Trace McSorley in his first start. And the Rams score 51-14 over the Broncos. Daylight Englewood, California. Baker Mayfield threw two touchdown passes to Tyler Higby. Cam Akers ran for 118 yards and three more scores, and Los Angeles routed Denver for its second victory since mid-October. Mayfield went 24 of 28 for 230 yards in another standout performance for his second win in three starts with the Rams of the 5-10 record, who produced the best game of their dismal season on Christmas. Rookie Kobe Durant returned his second interception 85 yards for a touchdown with four minutes and eight seconds left to cap the Rams' first 50-point performance under Sean McVay since their famed 54-51 victory over Kansas City in 2018. In his Los Angeles debut, Laurel Murchison 
had two and a half of the Rams' six sacks of Russell Wilson, who passed 214 yards with three interceptions for Denver with a 4-11 record. That's the NFL Roundup Sunday replay. Another AP story, number one Purdue headlines, top 25 poll again. That's written by Aaron Beard. Purdue may, remained atop the Associated Press top 25 men's college basketball poll for a third straight week, while preseason number one North Carolina returned to the rankings and New Mexico cracked the poll for the first time in eight years. The Boilermakers earned 40 of 60 first place votes in Monday's latest poll, while fellow unbeaten Connecticut earned the top 20 to sit at number two in an unchanged top. Purdue had never been ranked number one before a week, a one-week stay last December and was unranked to start the season. But the Boilermakers made a rapid rise from number 24 to number 5 in a one-week span in late November, then climbed to number 1 on December the 12th. The Boilermakers' win against New Orleans last week marked their first home game with that number 1 ranking. We've not had any handouts. We've had to work for everything, Coach Matt Painter said afterwards, adding, but we've earned it. But we've got to keep earning it. This isn't the season. This is just a third of the season. The top tier, number three Houston, number four Kansas, and number five Arizona held their positions as the top five remained in place for a second straight week. Texas was number six, followed by Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, and Gonzaga. The preseason choice at number two that returned to the top ten after sliding as low as number 18 earlier this month. The Tar Heels return. North Carolina is back. In the poll at number 25 after a tumultuous opening to the season. Returning four starters from last year's unexpected run to the NCAA title game, the Tar Heels started December by becoming only the sixth team to go from preseason number one to unranked since at least the 1961-62 season. That came after a run of four straight losses. But UNC has won four straight since, the past two coming against Big Ten teams, Ohio State on December 17th and Michigan last week to regroup. And rising, Miami had the week's biggest jump after a win against Virginia, climbing eight spots to number 14 for its highest ranking since the 2017-18 season. Number 20, Auburn, rose three spots, and all 10 teams moved up from last week. Those sliding, Virginia took the week's biggest tumble, falling seven spots to number 13. Mississippi State was close behind, falling six spots to number 21. Duke was the only other team to slide, falling three spots to number 17. Status quo, seven teams held their positions from last week, with number 12 Baylor and number 19 Kentucky joining the unchanged top five. Xavier and New Mexico are welcomed in. They are tied at number 22, while number 24 West Virginia joined them in new additions to the poll this season. For the Lobos, it marks the first time they've cracked the AP Top 25 since March 2014. Farewell for now. Illinois, number 16, and Virginia Tech, number 21. Marquette, number 24, and Arizona State, number 25, fell out from last week's poll. And finally, in Conference Watch, the Southeastern Conference led all leagues with six ranked teams, followed by the Big 12 with five and the Atlantic Coast Conference with four. The Big Ten had three ranked teams, while the Pac-12 and Big East each had two. The American Athletic West Coast and Mountain West Conferences each had one. And that about wraps it up for the sports section. We'll bring you some Today in History news from the Associated Press. Now, this would be for 
Tuesday, December 27th. If you're hearing this on the morning of Wednesday, December 28th, just think of it as being yesterday. On December 27th, 1979, Soviet forces seized control of Afghanistan. President Hafizullah Amin, who was overthrown and executed, was replaced by Babrak Karmal. On this date in 1822, scientist Louis Pasteur was born in Dole, France. In 1831, naturalist Charles Darwin set out on a round-the-world voyage aboard the HMS Beagle. In 1904, James Barry's play, Peter Pan, The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, opened at the Duke of York's Theatre in London. In 1932, New York City's Radio City Music Hall first opened. In 1945, 28 nations signed an agreement creating the World Bank. In 1958, American physicist James Van Allen reported the discovery of the second radiation belt around Earth, in addition to one found earlier in the year. In 1985, Palestinian gunmen opened fire inside the Rome and Vienna airports in terrorist attacks that killed 19 people. Four attackers were slain by police and security personnel. American naturalist Diane Fossey, age 53, who had studied gorillas in the wild in Rwanda, was found hacked to death. In 1999, Space Shuttle Discovery and its seven-member crew returned to Earth after fixing the Hubble Space Telescope. In 2001, Defense Secretary Donald H. Rumsfeld announced that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda prisoners would be held at the U.S. Naval Base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. In 2002, a defiant North Korea ordered U.N. nuclear inspectors to leave the country and said it would restart a laboratory capable of producing plutonium for nuclear weapons. The U.N. nuclear watchdog said its inspectors were staying put for the time being. In 2016, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, accompanied by President Barack Obama, visited Pearl Harbor in Hawaii where he offered his sincere and everlasting condolences to the souls of those who lost their lives in Japan's 1941 attack. Abe did not apologize, but conceded his country must never repeat the horrors of war again. Actor Carrie Fisher died in a hospital four days after suffering a medical emergency aboard a flight to Los Angeles. She was 60. And then 10 years ago, an Indian-born man, Sunando Sen, was shoved to his death from a New York City subway platform. Suspect Erica Menendez later pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to 24 years in prison. Authorities say Menendez pushed Sen because she thought he was a Muslim. Sen was Hindu. Retired Army General Norman Schwarzkopf, age 78, died in Tampa, Florida. Those notes of history from the Associated Press for December 27th. And that is just about all the time that we have for this episode of the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the Tuesday, December 27th edition, as brought to you here on the morning of Wednesday, December 28th, 2022, if you're listening on the air. This is your reader filling in. My name is Andrew Haupt. Thank you so much for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and straight ahead.